I'm Logan Bishop from Belmont University. And I'm Jenna Spinelli from Penn State. You're listening to Higher Ed Social, part of the Connect EDU network. Everybody, uh, welcome back to the show. Um, we're here with Ken Schneck, and uh, we'll let him introduce himself. Hi, everybody. Thanks for having me. Uh, my name is Ken Schneck. Uh, I'm a professor of leadership in higher education at Baldwin Wallace University, right outside of Cleveland, Ohio. And I'm the editor of The Buckeye Flame, which is Ohio's only statewide LGBTQ publication right now. So leading a bit of a double life. How did you end up kind of doing what you do, I guess? Sure. Yeah, no, I I always tell people that that my life changed that that pivotal moment that so many people have when they become an RA. And so when I became an RA my junior year of New York University, uh, I knew that that's what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. Um, so I was an RA my junior and senior year, went straight into their uh, leadership and higher ed master's program. Uh, continued being an RA. So I was at the time the only fourth year RA of hundreds of RAs um, and was roundly made fun of for that constantly. Uh, but I liked it. Um, and then, yeah, I, j- I really just wanted to work in residence life. I wanted my own RA staff. That's that's what I wanted to do in the field. And I had all my interviews lined up and uh, for the summer after my master's, after I finished my master's, and then my appendix burst. And I missed all of my interviews. Uh, I was squatting in an NYU residence hall, living illegally there, just hiding out because I didn't know what to do or where to go. Uh, And it was getting, you know, later and later in the summer. And finally, Pace University was in a desperate spot. They needed someone uh, to be an assistant director, which was way above my pay grade at that point. And I certainly needed a job. So I just fell into it and, and was able to leap a couple steps and, Started at Pace University, and my first day at Pace University right outside of New York City was uh, September 11th, 2001. Um, and so that's how I started my career, was was being there for students that I didn't know on this uh, just national tragedy beyond conception day. Uh, I had a couple jobs after that, and, and then really just very fortunately and through a lot of privilege fell into being a dean. I was a, a dean by the time I was 25 years old. It was way too young to be a dean. Uh, I was in no way ready for it. Uh, thought I would do it for the rest of my life. Did it for 10 years, burnt out at 35 years old, and was either going to open a restaurant or become a member of the faculty. And then here I am. I found a faculty position that valued the type of writing that I do and the type of teaching that I do, moved to the Midwest, and now I get to talk to you too. Let's talk about burnout. Yeah, she's Burnout's legit. Yeah, burnout is legit. I I I did a presentation at NASPA a few years ago called like I burnt out and you can too if you follow these five easy steps and I do all of them. I mean, I, I I'm a lot better now. I, I think that I probably wouldn't have changed if I stayed on the administrative side. I would have kept burning out. I was all the classic tropes. I didn't take my vacation and I was proud of it. I didn't have boundaries between home and work life. I um, was comparing stories in a in a kind of competitive way at conferences of who had the worst stories. Like 
all the different pieces that you're not supposed to do that lead you to burnout. I checked every single box and unsurprisingly burnt out. Yeah. And were you, were you writing at, at this point too? I was writing for the Huffington Post. Um, I, I, you know, Huffington Post back then had just started its college section. And so they wanted just different voices. And, and they reached out to the college where I was the dean of students and said, do you have anybody there? And they're like, yeah, we have this snarky gay Jew from New York City. You want him? And they're like, sure, we'll take him. Uh, and, and it was great. And so I started writing for the Huffington Post. And I realized that as I was submitting pieces for them, I could actually submit to any section I wanted on the Huffington Post. So I started submitting for the what was then the, the gay voices section and is now the, the queer voices section. Um, and, and so it was great. It really helped me express my voice in a, a much more tight and focused way. Um, but I will tell you that I, I started gravitating solely towards the queer voices section because quite frankly, it had more readership. But then I read a story about um, I think this is 2013, 2014. I read a story about a, a residence hall director who died in a fire at a university and they found out that she had set the fire. And so I wrote a piece called, um, I think it was called Student Affairs Administrators Get Suicidal Too. And honest, again, I was writing for other sections that had more readership. The college section didn't have that much readership. So I figured all right, you know, if 40 people read this, I'll be thrilled. And it struck a nerve that I was not prepared for, uh, of just having a mental health conversation or a conversation about mental health in the field of student affairs. And it was everywhere. And people were writing, uh, think pieces about my think piece and, and pushing back against it. And, uh, it was, it was, it was a really great turning point for me to make sure that I'm doing my, public discourse as much on higher ed as I do on LGBTQ issues. But yeah, that I was speaking at RA trainings. I was speaking up about burnout. It was hilarious because I had just burnt out. I had just moved over to the faculty side. Um, but that conversation about mental health and student affairs is still just not there. Uh, it's not, it's not there. Yeah. I, and I know. And so, right. I try to do that at least with my students to have that conversation about work-life balance and, and, you know, we shame people for taking vacation days. It's not even that people don't take them. If you do, then everyone else in the office says, oh my God, can you believe that Jenna took off this week? Like of all the weeks. And by the way, all 52 weeks of the year, they would have said that. Like they, everyone says, well, that was the worst possible week for Jenna to have taken off. So it's not, it's not a great culture for, for burnout. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like, especially now when everybody's there's the, the budget situations are so much more precarious and people feel like they have to work more to like prove their value. I, I know the, the writer, Anne Helen Peterson calls it LARPing your job, like live action role playing your job to make people, you know, make yourself look busy or, you know, things like that. Oh, I was the worst. At it. I mean, I, that Dean of students job, uh, I, I was on call. So, right. I got my first pager uh, when I was an RA in 1997, and I had a pager, not even a cell, a pager through 2013, because when I was a dean of students in Vermont, they still use pagers in Vermont because the cell phone coverage is so bad. Um, so I'd, I was on call from, from 97 to 2013 straight through, uh, and, and it took a toll on me. I used to say that that my my ex-husband at the time, well, he was my husband at the time, now ex-husband, but um, I used to say he could have showed up any day of the week at the college 
and been able to hit the ground running because it's all I talked about. It's all I brought home with me. Uh, cause I, I never learned that separation. Um, so yeah, it, it took a toll on my relationship. It took a toll on my own mental health. Uh, and it's a, it's a very consuming life. Yeah. yeah. So, so what are some of the strategies and things you talk about with your, your students now for how to not get to that place or perhaps get themselves out of it if they, or to, to recognize that they're there if they do wind up there? Um, so counseling programs, counseling master's degrees mandate that their students do counseling, uh, student affairs programs absolutely should be mandating that student affairs professionals do counseling. Uh, we often pretend so that then leads into stop pretending that we're counselors. So often in our field, we are pretend because we couldn't possibly say to the student, Oh, I'm not equipped to deal with that. Yeah. You actually need to say to the student, I'm not equipped to deal with that. Um, because you're actually not right and instead because we want to have this open door policy which stop having those as well uh it's okay to close your door every now and then um because we want to have these open door policies we take on all of this trauma and there's this whole concept that i wrote about in that in that piece gosh that was like eight years ago at this point um called vicarious trauma right this idea of vicarious trauma that if you keep responding to trauma which in res life you do uh, if you keep responding to trauma, it can't not affect you. It's impossible. That's vicarious trauma. And so counseling is a big piece of that. Not pretending that you're a counselor to take on things you're not equipped to do. Um, taking your vacation days, uh, really having those conversations with, um, you know, some of it in res life is a, res life is a prime culprit in some of this where it's almost encouraged that you share the entirety of your existence with the other people on staff. And that if you have boundaries, well, Logan's not committed. I mean, why isn't Logan talking about his relationships and what's going on with him and how far was that run, Logan? And how did you feel? No, no, no. It's actually okay to have boundaries and say, um, I'm, I'm at home right now and, and, and this is work and there's a difference between those. Uh, but it's, it's honestly seen the exact opposite. I, I remember I supervised someone at one point where I, he was really thrown off that, that, he was coming and talking to me about his relationship woes. And I really put kind of a wall up and said, you know, here are different resources. If you need that, I, I don't know that this is the place for that. And he was pretty miffed because that wasn't the student affairs model that he came from. And it's not the student affairs model that many people come from. We share every healthy model. It's not, it's not. I've, I've definitely heard this story before. Um, and, and I say that not just because, you know, I host a podcast about higher ed, but I have definitely heard that um, on previous episodes. And I've actually heard the opposite side where, you know, the student affairs life is so important and being part of student affairs at a university is, you know, it's, it's, it's a life choice and mm. it is a, you know, it is a thing. And work-life balance, is it real? I don't want to call any names. People can go back and listen to previous episodes if they want to. Um, but it is not healthy at all. And I know exactly how you feel because I, I work at a university, obviously. Uh, and my wife works in the student affairs department in, the, um, in uh, student care and support, mm -hmm. which is one of those areas where, you know, vicarious trauma is real that's the 
best word that I've ever heard of it because I, when both of you work at the same university, it's almost like you don't leave the university when you come home um, because both of us have something to say when we get home. Not necessarily bad. We both love where we work. Um, right. Belmont's a great place. But, you know, it, it. we all deal with things and we have to talk about things. And that's one of the things that we've had to do is just say, just know when to say to each other, okay, stop. That's it. No more Belmont. Let's talk it, about something else. It affects your physiology. I mean, I would yes, say that I categorically do not sleep the same way from when I first got a pager. And I now sleep differently when I moved from the staff side, from the administrator side to the faculty side. When I finally stopped responding to every crisis in the middle of the night, which was part of my job. And, and quite frankly, I'm that guy. Like you want to call me in the middle of the night because it, it won't even seem like I'm sleeping. I know how to flip that switch instantly now of just, okay, tell me what's going on and what are the resources there and what are, you know, all the different student development theories that I can employ at three in the morning. Um, and when I moved in 2013, geographically and vocationally, uh, from the, from the administrator side to the faculty side, I sleep completely different now. Hopefully I, better, right? Oh my God. I sleep. I, I say that, that, <laughs> that my stress level, I mean, I sometimes have to remind myself, like if I get stressed in the professor role, I'm stressed about her paper being late. It's not what I was stressed about as a Dean of students, you know, like it's, it, this yeah. is a different level. Um, so sometimes, um, people have to check me with that, but I, I get pushback. I get pushback of not being committed enough to the field simply because I have a pretty robust writing and nonprofit life outside of this work. And that is seen by some people in our field as, well, then you're not fully committed. Are, are you not going to the football game on Saturday? I am not going to the football game on Saturday. I wouldn't have gone anyway. So like, I don't even know why that was a thing, but, but the, the, it's seen as less of a commitment because I have a life outside of this work. And I fundamentally do not believe that. So I, I think Jenna, the other, the other thing I would say is, is role modeling it, right? Really showing my students. I don't, I don't hide my public life of, of non higher ed stuff. Uh, it is there for anyone to consume. I don't have separate pages of, here's my Facebook presence for faculty and here's my Facebook presence for all the LGBTQ stuff. Like it's, it's role modeling that no, I'm not on campus 24 seven. And I do stuff that I do think is related to what I teach. Uh, but it has nothing to do with Baldwin Wallace university and that's okay. Role modeling. Yeah. 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 yeah I was actually going to ask you about that. Do, do your students know um, about your writing? Does it, does it come up at all? It's something I struggle with a lot is like, how much do I mix? I, I live in, in several different worlds and I'm always, you know, not quite sure how to, how much or, you know, how to quite mix them together. I think for me, it was finding that narrative thread that connects all of them, right? I was struggling with, uh, I'm saying yes to too many things, right? Like that's another burnout piece of you're just saying yes to everything. And I was saying yes to everything and I wasn't exactly sure why. And it really took some intentionality and, and quite frankly, through my own therapy uh, of spe sitting down with someone and saying, oh, I... I got to find the narrative thread that connects all of these different things. Cause one, it helps me to talk about them uh, in mixed company, right? Like I can talk about my writing or my teaching in different contexts, but it also enables me to say no for me to say, you know what? That's amazing. Thank you so much for that opportunity. Um, but it's, it's not something that it's not where I am right this second or what I'm working on right this second. 
you know, my narrative thread is is all about storytelling uh, and specifically about storytelling to lift up underrepresented voices. That's what I do in my teaching. That's what I do in my, you know, in publishing books. Uh, that's what I do in my radio work like that. That is what I do. Um, but it took me years to be able to say that sentence and find that thread. That's made it a lot easier for me so that I don't have to compartmentalize um, so that I don't have to, because right, compartmentalize leads to fracturing and fracturing also not healthy. Um, so I've tried really hard to be able to articulate the bleed between all of these different areas, the narrative thread between these areas so that I don't have to compartmentalize because I know me and I'm not a healthy person when I'm compartmentalizing. I'm not good at that. That's what well, I do this. I do a workshop uh, here in Cleveland a lot called Shameless Self-Promotion. And I invariably, when we talk about social media, the question I get, I mean, I do this workshop at this point, like every three or four weeks, like I do it a lot and it's a blast. And we just talk a lot about branding and, and mostly about how to work past the emotional barriers to promoting yourself. Um, but invariably, when we talk about social media, the question I get almost every single workshop is, should I set up a, a separate page for this? And, and I get why some people do that uh, because they work in environments where that narrative thread doesn't carry over. For me, I don't. Uh, anybody, like my Facebook page is 100% public. Uh, and so students can see anything going on there, but it's also highly curated. I know what I'm putting on there. It's very intentional. So yeah, I, I don't have that compartmentalization because I'm not capable of it. Other people are way better at that. Yeah. I've never been able to do that on social myself. I have enough trouble like doing a higher ed social Twitter account along with mine. Oh, yeah. um, that's why Jenna is so awesome because she tweets there too. And it makes me happy. Um, but yeah, I can't, I can't do that. Um, I find it. I've just never understood that just hiding everything because I've always like, like you um, just highly curated the stuff that I post. Um, and to the point, almost too much where I didn't post enough. But um, at least for my own like interest in it, where I just sucked at it. But um, I definitely understand that, and I understand the, the the compartmentalizing because it can be really, just really hard to just turn on and off the different kinds of yourself, you know. Yeah. And it's just so tiring. It's exhausting. Um, it's exhausting. You know, the the storytelling work I do in Cleveland led to um, I host most of the burlesque shows, there's a vibrant burlesque community in Cleveland. And I host most of the burlesque shows here. And, you know, we get a lot of burlesque performers in from out of town and, and they will say, God, that's such a bizarre burlesque name that you have. And Schneck, no, 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 that's literally my name. And it's great because <laughs> I recognize that for them, right? Like, and some of them work in higher ed. And so they have a burlesque name and then they have their actual name. That never even occurred to me. I agree with you. Ken Schneck is a real dumb burlesque name. It's all <laughs> <laughs> like, it's just my name. That's right. And that to me is like, that never even occurred to me to come up with, with uh, a nom de plume, right? Like to just come up with something completely different. Yeah. I know I could never have a different name. <laughs> Like you struggle with your name enough, Logan. Uh, yeah, I'd be what Gary. You know, it's <laughs> just not. It just doesn't work. I have to have my weird name. I like being weird. It's one of the, 
Um, it's one of the hallmarks of who I am. There you go. Um, which is nice. It took me a while to, you know, uh, accept that, but you know, it, it, it's a winner so far. There, It'll keep being that for you. So, so how did you get into, for, I mean, you are a Dean faculty <laughs> member, um, life got less stressful. How did you get into the other things that you do? Um, the writing, the radio, all that kind of fun stuff. There's an activism concept that, that is, it's the string theory or the thread theory, um, not string theory like math, because I don't know how to do math, uh, but the thread theory uh, and the thread theory of activism. And this is actually another way to not burn out, right? Like we burn out in activism because we're trying to do all the things. You can't do all the things. The thread theory says, pick up a thread, just one, one thread. That's it, just one but follow that thread everywhere it goes. And I feel that's what I've done, right? Like I, I do say yes to a lot of different opportunities, but it was just picking up a thread. So, you know, I had been writing for the Huffington Post and then um, I, I started just saying yes to different adventures. Um, I, you know, my divorce messed me up it, and I would, it very openly messed me up. And so I chose to write my way through it. And so I started saying yes to different opportunities to, to just get out of my own head. And so I ended up saying it was, it was a ra- it was my own radio show. Um, there was a guest who was talking about the homophobia in Uganda and she brings groups of people to Uganda to do nonprofit work there. And I heard myself say on the air, well, I'm going to go with you next time you go. And within 48 hours, I had a ticket to go to Uganda with her. And that's when I just started journaling and writing to publish in a different way. Um, so it all was kind of happening around that same time as my divorce. And I just started saying yes to more and more adventures, stuff that I would normally say no to. Like I had never ridden more than 30 miles in my life on a bike, but I said yes to doing this 450 mile five day trek from Montreal to Portland, Maine. Um, I had never slept outside before. And I said yes to uh, doing uh, outward bounds in the back country of the Colorado Rockies. And so it turned into my first book. Um, I journaled every night of all five of the adventures in the book. Um, and I just literally wrote by hand. The journals are actually right behind me. Uh, I typed it all up and, and that became my first book. I started going around to different storytelling shows. Cleveland has a wonderful storytelling community here. And and I just wanted to just try some of these stories out. Um, and that led to, again, it was that same thread. I just followed it different places. It led to, it led to that burlesque. It led to doing stand-up comedy. Um, and it really did lead to my first book being published. Uh, my first book was published of just my adventures in the world. Um, I'm ridiculously proud of it. It was an amazing experience. And I... Uh, uh, the, a publisher got in touch with the LGBT center here and said, do you have any gay writers uh, in Cleveland who'd be interested in writing some history books? And so they recommend as if I was the only one, which I'm so not the only gay writer uh, in Cleveland uh, that led to writing these history books. And I'm not a historian, but it was just collecting images. Uh, so I wrote the Cleveland one, which led to the Columbus one, which led to the Cincinnati one. I think I'm good on the gay city books. I'm pretty done now. Uh, and so, you know, it, it's been amazing. I, it, it is that storytelling thread and I just follow it everywhere. Um, I've done a lot better at saying no to some of the things too. Um, I have, a, 
this this actually just happened a few weeks ago. I have an obsession with this gay Republican on Twitter because I really think I can change his mind and I'm wrong, but I, it doesn't stop me from trying. And he has a million followers and he asked me a few weeks ago, would I be on his YouTube show, which gets about a million views a week? Uh, to, uh, and he said, will you be on the show? And I said, well, what's the topic? And he said, it's, it's immigration. And I said, no, because I don't know anything about that. That's not in my wheelhouse. It's not what I do. That's a different thread. Previously in my life, I would have said yes to that for the exposure, but that was me sacrificing my authenticity. And so I've just done a lot better job at just one thread, follow it everywhere it goes. Now, I'm also, you know, uh, uh, an able-bodied white male. So there's a lot of privilege uh, as someone who teaches racial justice. You know, most of my courses are based in it. I... that has enabled, we, we can't forget that that has enabled so many of the opportunities that I've had. Um, and, and that's, that, that's some of the new challenges that I'm experiencing is making sure that I'm not taking up too much space. Cause I do worry about that a lot. So yeah, one thread, that's what's, that's, mm-hmm. I've said yes to things, but I hate saying this phrase. They have to be on brand, right? Like they have to be on values. They have to be what it is that I do. Um, and years ago, years and years ago, especially with the radio show, I mean, the radio show also opened a lot of doors. And that was me just sitting at a at the 4th of July parade in Brattleboro, Vermont, which the 4th of July parade in Brattleboro, Vermont is three fire trucks and a drag queen. And they were handing out um, flyers of who wants to host a radio show. And I said yes to that and and did that. I wanted to do 10 episodes and I finished uh, for about, you know, like maybe a couple months of doing it. I finished on episode 430 after 10 years. That opened a lot of doors for me. So, yeah, that narrative thread of storytelling is huge yeah. for me. Yeah, and that's that's interesting that, that you you bring up. I mean, there's also this thread of, you know, amplifying underrepresented voices. And that requires getting out of the way sometimes. It sounds like you've oh, you've been thinking about that a lot. I know I've been hearing that that conversation a lot in, you know, conference circles and, and you know, podcasting even, all, all, all kinds of things. Just realizing that as, as much as we individually might want to say yes to things, maybe that's not always the best in, like, the grand scheme of things. There's a local magazine that that I write for um, that that pays pretty darn well, um, and I I'm mortified. I'm nothing but painfully self aware, and so I have no problem admitting things like this. I'm mortified that it just took me uh, yes until yesterday, which is two months after the fact, that they have been giving me all of the profiles on black artists. Um, I've written seven of them in the past two months. And this one that I'm working on right now will be my last one because uh, I need to push back. Um, and I mean, I went and I interviewed this black artist on on Saturday. I went to his studio and the exhibit was amazing. And he's speaking about these experiences and I certainly can teach the theories, but, but someone who is going to write that piece, who is more familiar with that experience because they've had that experience is going to write a better piece than I can write. Um, and so I, this will be my last one and I will push back and say, listen, I, you have to find a black writer for these pieces. And that might result in, and what I suspect, if we're being honest, those pieces are just going to go to a different white writer, but I need to push back. I need to at least do everything that I can do. It's the same thing I'm doing on campus, right? Of saying, here's a search where there are four finalists and, and this is an actual thing happening right now. Uh, and three of the four finalists are professionals of color. 
And I'm pretty sure that the offer just went out today to the one white male of those four. And so where can I push back and use my voice where I am at the table and use my faculty voice to say, this is unacceptable. And, and what does it mean that all of the officers of the university are male? Right. And, and so I'm trying to find those places where I can push back and have some effect, right? Because it's that fine line between pushing back and becoming the squeaky wheel where everyone's just like, oh, there goes Ken again on divert. A faculty member actually said that last year. Something came up about diversity and she said, Ken's going to say something. Okay. Ken is going to say something, but, and I did, but it's problematic that you're recognizing the issue, but associating it with pushback that you know is about to come from me. So yeah, it's, it, I, I, I'm, I'm a little self-conscious about that, about being such a squeaky wheel that I don't have an effect anymore. Yeah. But, I, but, but I'll say speaking from the staff perspective, Logan, I don't, I don't know if you share this, but I, I always appreciate when somebody with tenure is willing to speak up and get those conversations going in a way that, you know, those of us who are on the staff side can't. 100%. Yeah. Yeah, that tenure thing is real. Like, it's like a real thing. And I probably should have been more aware of not being tenured beforehand. But, um, you know, I'm 40. I just turned 44 last week. And I'm a 44-year-old full professor with tenure. Um, I, I I didn't have a filter before, but now I really don't have one. Uh, <laughs> and, and, I, and I do think it's it's using that power for good. And and finding those places where staff and right, that's an obsession of mine is finding places where staff and faculty can work meaningfully together and intentionally together. Um, that was probably one of the hardest professional transitions of my life was moving from staff to faculty. You often see it the other direction, right? Like, mm-hmm. oh, well, any faculty could be an administrator um, and precious few administrators are allowed to be faculty. And it's so bogus and it's so ridiculous Uh and having done the transition in the opposite direction that most people do it, it's given me a ton of perspective. Um, and there are staff who are like, you're not one of us anymore, but I am. I, I, what are you talking about? But I get it. I totally get it. Yeah. So it's as really- we, we start to like bring things in for, for a close here, Ken, thank you for being so, so generous uh, with your time. What, uh, what's next for you? You've done so many different things. I know you probably have at least a couple different irons in the fire right now. Yeah, you know, I think when I was on the staff side, there was, I'm a video game nerd, right? And I grew up playing Zelda. And so this idea of leveling up is so uh, ingrained in me. So to be on the faculty side and kind of have hit that ceiling, like there's nothing else for me to do. I can't, there, there's this thing kind of like super tenure that you get, but it's it's it doesn't do anything. So um, what I really tried to figure out is how to use my voice more effectively. Um, and in some ways to stay in my lane. Uh, I think before it was, well, there aren't enough RAs of color and there aren't enough orientation leaders of color. And it's like, yeah, but I'm a faculty member now. And so I need to be focusing on the curriculum and the diversity, the lack of diversity in the curriculum and the lack of faculty of color and the stuff that's actually in the faculty wheelhouse. So I really want to pay attention to that and, and work with students on that and have these conversations. And then outside of my faculty work, you know, this Buckeye Flame thing is, is, is probably the most important thing I've ever done. Uh, starting this publication during a pandemic um, in this state, right? I'm from New York City, the New York City area. I lived in the gay mecca of Vermont for six years before I moved here. And to drive from Vermont to Cleveland and lose 
a ton of protections in my rear view mirror in that seven hour drive and live in this state where there, where I can be fired for being gay and lose my housing for being gay uh, and be kicked out of a restaurant for being gay. I know that my way to address that is, is through my writing, right? And so featuring these stories of individuals, not just in Cleveland, Cincinnati and Columbus, but there are a lot of gay people in this state who have nothing to do with big city life uh, who are really struggling. So for me, um, you know, this is a, it's a 501c3 nonprofit. I'm learning how to be an executive director of a, of a nonprofit. That's apparently a thing. Uh, and, and it's how can I amplify as many different LGBTQ voices in this state as possible? Because there's some real change. I mean, we're in the middle of a pandemic struggling enormously. And our state lawmakers, as many state lawmakers have done, uh, our state lawmakers just introduced last week the bill to ban trans people from playing sports. I don't even care about how ridiculous that bill is. It's that you are prioritizing that right now. The bill is ridiculous and it shouldn't pass, but that that is a priority. There are two lawmakers who are proposing a, um, uh, a statewide Donald Trump uh, Memorial Day, uh, recognizing his birthday. That's where some of the values are here right now. And I need to do what I do. And that's not, I'm not an elected official anymore. I'm not, you know, like I need to do it through my writing and that's my space to do that. And I think that's where I can make a difference. So I got to keep doing it. I know the Donald Trump day is killing me, killing me. And it's on flag day. <laughs> birthday is on flag day, uh-huh. but it's aside from the ridiculousness of that. And, and quite frankly, he was the most LGBT, anti LGBTQ president we've ever had. Uh, it's that that that's where the priorities are in the state where I really I've I've been told repeatedly I will never be a Clevelander uh, right because I'm not from here but I really do this is my home Cleveland Ohio this is my home and and I want to do what I can do to make it as great as possible for my LGBTQ siblings and there's a lot to do so that's yeah that's no no books in the hopper right now I think I'm good on books so we're just gonna keep up <laughs> gay articles yeah thanks Ken that Happy. was. This is so great having you on the show this week. Uh, you all, you guys rock. And thank you so much for doing this. I mean, I am such a firm believer in the power of voice on podcasts. And so you're doing a great thing. Well, thank, thank you. you. Listeners, head down to higher-ed.social and get links to the stuff we talked about today and subscribe to the show anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you like the show, please give us, uh, please consider giving us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps people find us and it lets us know what you think of the show. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at HES Podcast. Send us a tweet. We love talking to you. And don't forget to let us know if you want to be on the show. Higher Ed Social was created by Jackie Vitrano and me, Logan Bishop. And this episode was produced by Emma Haas. Uh, we're part of the Connect EDU Network, the first podcast network for higher education. Visit the website connectedu.network and subscribe to some awesome shows no matter where you work on campus. Thanks, and we'll talk to you in a couple weeks.